Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. The greater sagegrass, an icon of the West, is indicative of the health of the sagebrush ecosystem that blankets much of the Great Basin. Utah has about 20,000 greater sagegrass. In wildlife management, the conservation of this species has been a top priority. An international sagegrass forum is being held Thursday and Friday, November 13 and 14 in Salt Lake City at the Radisson Hotel. The meeting will bring together local sagegrass working groups, landowners, county and city planners, energy industry representatives, and local government officials from throughout the West. The goal is to interact with federal, regional, and state sagegrass conservation decision makers and wildlife managers and biologists to further advance sagegrass conservation through science, management, and local community involvement. Today on the program, we hear from Utah State University wildlife biologist Terry Mesmer and rancher Lee Cornwell. They each offer different perspectives on the species that has come to symbolize conservation in the American West. First, Cornwell joins us from his ranch. I live in northeastern Montana, north of the Missouri River and the Milk River, and south of the Canadian line. Glasgow, Montana is our mailing address. It sounds beautiful. What's it like there? Oh, it's uh, we're used to it. We've been here. <laughs> We've been here since my grandfather came in here with a pack outfit from Helena in 1892. It was a this was an Indian reservation until 1886, and then they downsized the Indian reservations and opened this up to homesteading. Railroad came in 1887. The Great Northern, I think it was called the I don't know something Minnesota and Manitoba or something. <laughs> and my grandfather came over here because this was. This was the, what was available when to homestead when he when he when he was of age to do it. Came to Montana in 1889, worked in a blacksmith shop, and then he got some backing and came over here in 1892. Started out with 160 acres of land on the on the creek that we still live on, and we've been here ever since. And so I understand that you are a rancher and you have cattle. And can you describe your your ranch? We have, uh, my grandfather started the sheep in 1892 and then acquired some cattle. And, uh, and then in 1947 or 48, after World War II, my father and his twin brother were getting ready to take the ranch over and it was getting harder and harder to find people to take care of the sheep. So my grandfather sold the sheep and retained ownership on his calves and, and made it. So we have a cow-calf background and we sell 18-month yearlings in the fall. We keep everything that is raised on the ranches and, and sell them in the fall as long yearlings in September, usually in October. When I'm in the middle of five generations, the fifth generation is just being born now. So. Wonderful. What is your experience with the sage grouse population, and when did you first see them, and what was your what's your impression I, of them? I graduated from high school and went to a country school for eight years. Graduated from high school in 1969, and then went on to college in Bozeman, starting in the fall of '69. And we were, when I was young and hunting, I don't hunt much anymore. But there was there was sage hens between the Milk River and the Missouri River. There's that's as far north. The Milk River is as far north as the Wyoming Big Sagebrush comes. And there's a lot of hardpan flats and sagebrush country out there. And when I was a 
high school student hunting hunting there was there was sagens lots and lots of them and then uh, most of the ranges were managed on continuous grazing they were you turned the cows out and then gathered them back in the fall and there wasn't a lot of a lot of rotational grazing or anything. So when I went to college in Bozeman, I graduated in 1974, and I took egg production, egg econ, and kind of focused on range. I had some range background stuff, and that was at the beginning of the rest rotational grazing systems. And so they were implemented in the 60s through the 80s to rotate the grazing on the summer range. And and, uh, the sage-hen numbers just kind of started to decline in the 60s, and and we're kind of at the low point now. I don't think there's a lot more hunting pressure or anything like that. We thought we were making it better between the, the agencies and the, and the agencies and the ranches that the families that own the ranches. And it seems like what we've been doing <laughs> doesn't help them. And what is that? What do you, what do you think it is? I don't have any idea. We mm-hmm. we were the range is in better condition now, and as far habitat there's just as many acres as there ever was you know there wasn't a lot of where we where where our ranches are it's it's uh coal between the bureau of land management the state of montana and and the ranchers and so not a lot of it's been been broke up or farmed because it's not suitable for that and i don't know why there's less stage ends than there was we haven't there hasn't been any concerted effort from anybody to make them go away. They just, it just seems to be, de- they seem to be declining. We had some West Nile here when it came over, and that seemed to impact them some. And we've seen some rebound in the numbers in the last several years, but they're not in the quantity that they were in the 60s and early 70s. It's all just anecdotal. You know, I don't have any numbers to tell you. What. I don't think anybody was paying any attention when we were younger how many there were. You know, they fish and game and sell hunting licenses on them and there's always lots and they just gradually diminish the numbers. Right. What do you feel like your role is now with the sage grass? maintain that. We put a conservation easement on my brothers and my ranch, the, our family ranch, and we lease, a, we lease a, a piece of real estate from a gentleman in North Carolina and he's, he's replaced an easement on a bunch of that too. I think the uh, Every once in a while, when the grain market gets high, we're right on the edge of the farming. We're kind of the first first area that hasn't isn't farmed a lot, and and so people think that with you know we'll have our weather will cycle between a series of dry years and a series of wet years, and if the wet cycle happens to correspond with an increase in grain price, then a lot of the, with all the new technology and farming, they can go out there and and kill the grass on it and and break it up and and try to grow wheat or something on it. And and so we've, we've, we've just did a conservation easement with the Nature Conservancy on our ranch that says we won't subdivide it and we won't, we won't break it, uh, you know, convert it to farmland. And, you know, but we're just a small, that's why the numbers don't matter, because we're just a small part of the, of the total area, you know. And if we can lead by good examples and, and go forward, but I don't know. What, I don't know if that'll help the grouse or not. Right. We don't want them to go away, but I don't know what to do to fix it. Maybe we can't fix it all by ourselves. Our, we're in the migratory route. They migrate up to Canada. They come out of them off those flats down there north of the Missouri River, and and they migrate to Canada, and they come up into our area to raise their broods, and then and then move back to the Wyoming big sagebrush between the Missouri and the Milk Rivers to winter, and. 
I don't know whether it's predators or what it is. No, there's what what the deal is. Nobody knows. I don't think there hasn't been a lot of studying done on it yet. Maybe this initiative will help. Let's hope so. And do you have any interesting stories of seeing sage grouse or seeing them in doing their dance or or any memorable moments with the sage grouse? No, that we saw them when we when we were hunting. We you'd out. South Valley County, which is south of our ranching operations toward the Missouri River, there's there's a lot of big flats, kind of like Wyoming. My wife's from southwestern Wyoming, and at the time we were in high school, when we were 17, 18 years old, we'd go out there with a friend, some friends of ours and hunt, and one group, you'd start, and there'd be a large group, and then they'd fly down the drainage a little ways and spook another group, and they'd be, there'd be just, look like hundreds of them flying, you know, down, down through the through the drainages here, but what they don't right where we live and where we're at where we're at in the in the spring of the year when the when the lecks are active we don't we don't have a lot of lecks. There's we're kinda of right on the lunatic fringe of the sage grouse hmm. territory. They just there's small group that come up and go on up into Canada. I think we had a meeting here two weeks ago or a month ago with a bunch of Canadians and they said they've they've got they've got a grassland park up there. And he said they've got they only got documentation like forty or sixty or something mm-hmm. like that that are up there. So. I understand you practice rotational grazing on your land, and what is the strategy that works best for you and possibly for the sage grass as well? We try to rotate through the pasture so that we don't impact the same area at the same time every year. It's all used, and part of it gets a rest. But you you rotate through the pastures, and in similar type terrain, you can. You know, you can leave part of it and rest part of it, and then graze part of it and leave there. But they seem like I don't know. They seem like they they have a tendency to stay with wherever the cattle are. When you see them, they'll usually be in a pasture that has some livestock in it. For whatever reason, I have no idea. They don't. There'll be a third of the ranch that'll be rested during that growing season, and sometimes they'll be in there. But a lot of times they'll be right with the cattle. Interesting. With the predators or what the deal is, I don't know. Oh, so the sage grass will be with the cattle. Yep. Yeah, they're not, you know, they grew up with the buffalo. Their great, 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 great grandparents were with the buffalo. And so there wasn't any way. That was all just random at that time. There was no control over any of the grazing patterns or anything. In the 60s, when there was more grouse, the grazing was more more random than it is now. It's more structured now. Maybe that's part of the challenge. I don't know. That's really interesting, actually. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, who knows? You know, yeah. I, nobody wants to do anything to harm them. It's just, uh, it's just, what do we do to fix it? Because a lot of it is just manipulation. Domestic livestock is the only tool that you have that you can that you can manipulate. You don't have any control over the game or the or the birds or anything else, but you do have control over domestic livestock if you have fences, and you can and you can um, move them around or or keep them off a place. And we just don't know what to do. You know, collectively, the agencies and the different landowners and livestock owners don't know what to do to make it better. Right. Maybe this will fix that. It'll be a start in the right direction. Right. Well, that, that's true. And hopefully this meeting will initiate something and there are initiatives yep. out there and, and hopefully this will be... Yep. Everybody, you know, nobody wants anything to leave, to, to become extinct or to change. We want the diversity is what, 
what made America what it is, the diversity of the people and the diversity of the different species of animals and plants and things that live here. It's just, it's just how do you, a lot of the things we do are inadvertent, you know, that we, we don't realize we're causing a problem, and if we do, we'll change it. But we got to know what to change before we can make a substantive difference. Lee, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking the time, and especially at this last minute. And I know I caught you. You you were outside, is that right? <laughs> Working? Yep. yep. Well, I was trying to. I, you're not as effective at 63 as you were at 33. <laughs> 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 Hopefully it'll be substantive, and maybe it'll give some people an, a different idea on how what the rest of us do get to do we get to play with this all of it it's a pretty neat place to live oh it sounds just amazing and envious and good luck going forward and hopefully something will come out of this discussion and things that will be beneficial to the to the west to the world or however you want to look at it it's all right. kind of intertwined so true that's so true thank and you very well said That was Montana-based rancher Lee Cornwell. Back in a moment with USU wildlife biologist Terry Mesmer. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. Welcome back to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. In Utah, sage-grouse population densities are not as high as in neighboring Wyoming but they are increasing, according to Terry Mesmer. He says they are finding new lex every time he and his team of students and researchers go out into the field. Lex are small clearings in sagebrush habitat in which male sage-grouse perform a mating dance during the breeding season. When wildlife biologist Terry Mesmer wants to see the rare bird, the Gunnison sage-grouse, he blasts loud rock music from his truck. According to Mesmer, sage-grouse expert and professor in the College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, ACDC won't scare the birds away, but the noisy truck motor will. So he uses the music to cover up the sound of the engine when he drives out to observe them in their natural sagebrush habitat in southeastern Utah. The male birds are infamous for their elaborate mating dance that lures the females. Is it just the female that feeds the chicks? Are the, are the males all involved in the rearing? No, males are gone. I mean, they're, they're just like, see ya. <laughs> I did what I did. I did my dance. <laughs> it worked. Bye. I should say one night stand. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Sage-grass occupy habitat in 11 western states. And while the species' health varies from state to state, an endangered species listing would apply to all 11. States are working individually to solve a problem that affects the species as a whole. In an effort to improve the conservation strategies, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is working with states to develop a comprehensive management strategy. Part of that effort includes the International Sage-Grass Forum being held today and Friday in Salt Lake City. 
Mesmer joins us now to discuss the forum and the latest plans to save the bird. You know, one of the interesting things about the forum, uh, the last time that we had uh, this kind of group together uh, was, was 10 years ago in Reno. And, uh, you know, that was the, the, the first time that folks had gotten together, and the idea was theirs. We had just heard back that uh, the services made a decision that the, the listing greater sage-grouse was unwarranted. And so, but the the group got together with the idea of building and establishing a network, and 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 basically, really to to kind of exchange ideas across the landscape, so that uh, they could uh, find better ways to network. And 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 again, the focus from that was also looking at incentive-based conservation. In other words, a voluntary incentive-based conservation. Where, where landowners and, and communities and federal and state partners were working together to identify the threats to species conservation and also implement the conservation strategies that would be targeted in priority areas to benefit sage-grouse. And so uh, this forum that's uh, scheduled here in, actually uh, on November 13th and 14th is a it's been 10 years since the last one, but at this point, uh, you know, the, the landscape has changed a little bit. You know, what's what's happening now is uh, we still have the same commitment, the resolve. We have partners like the Natural Resources Conservation Service that has stepped in and, and literally committed millions of dollars to work with private landowners through conservation planning on projects to benefit sage-grouse. But the other part of the equation that's different from that is we also now have a uh, uh, a decision from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that greater sage-grouse uh, uh, is a candidate species in that it, it warrants protection, but it was precluded from listing because of higher conservation priorities. And so uh, uh, we now have a situation where uh, we have the same interest and the same level of resolve and, and actually commitment, but uh, the landscape has changed in that um, we're all, we are now looking at uh, a species that uh, is considered uh, a candidate. And so you you said that it w- they didn't list it because they had uh, higher priorities. And I'm wondering if you could right in in 2005 the decision was made not warranted based on you know the the conservation considerations in 2010. Uh, you know, and again, five years a lot can change on the landscape, but. Uh, in 2010, the service, in looking at the landscape and looking at the issues of fragmentation, habitat loss, and and also uh, uh, lack of regulatory mechanisms in particular, they uh, felt that the species warranted listing. But uh, again, because there are other species that were more of a, a conservation or, or more at risk, they deferred the listing of the greater sage-grouse. And so how do you feel that impacts the sage-grass populations? And I mean, it does seem like there are a lot of, there's a lot of work actually going on and conservation strategies with these initiatives. To date, there's probably been close to three-quarters of a billion dollars spent on sage-grass conservation. Wow. Um, states like Wyoming and Utah are, are, are Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, are 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 engaged in it have been engaged in sage-grouse conservation for a long time uh, 
per capita, Utah probably spends more than any other state based on the number of birds we have uh, dedicated to conservation projects. And so all of the states, however, have made that kind of commitment, and, and they've demonstrated that uh, projects on the ground uh, uh, in engaging federal and private partners are the way that we're going to get a handle on some of these uh, uh, these threats mitigate the risk, and at the same time uh, do the right things to not only protect existing populations, but also look at opportunities where we can actually expand and and uh, provide new habitat, uh, enhance habitat for the birds to use. And so, uh, hopefully, those things in conjunction together, by growing the denominator, if you will, and by reducing the impact or the threats for things such as wildfire, um, what we will see is a, a resilient population uh, that uh, uh, continues to sustain and grow for decades to come. So Lee had mentioned that he's noticed over the past several years a decline in the sage-grass population, at least where he's at, and, and he really, really didn't know why. I think he is utilizing some of those conservation strategies and what are the culprits to the declining populations? And is there anything um, new that you've learned in recently? Well, when we look at range-wide populations, one of the large threats, particularly if we're looking at the Great Basin area, is the impact of wildfires. And a lot of that impact is related to changes in the vegetation structure. We've got a lot more invasive species that are coming in, uh, cheatgrass, uh, we've got conifers that are encroaching into habitats. And so the combination of those two and coupled with, with, with dry years, you know, dry winters where we don't get the snow cover, but we get our precipitation as rain, those kind of things uh, actually fuel the, uh, the fuel base, you know, provide more vegetation growth, in this case, invasive species such as trees grass. And so that combination of factors and, and coupled with a dry year and a, you know, a, a dry summer, hot summer, uh, those things make conditions right for the, uh, uh, for wildfires. Uh, you know, there's been some modeling work that has been done that suggests that, you know, if we don't do anything that basically, uh, wildfires destroy, uh, on average, uh, 1% of the sage-grouse habitat, available habitat a year. And so you can see if that continues to progress over time and we don't something to, to stem that tide by uh, implementing preventive measures, uh, you know, rehabilitating some of these areas, uh, uh, you could see that over time the, the picture doesn't look very well for sagebrush ecosystems and the sage-grouse and other sagebrush obligates that inhabit those areas. And so... There's a lot of effort being put together range-wide, and you'll see some of this at the International Forum where scientists will talk about new models that they've developed to identify those areas that are more resilient to uh, this change and also uh, other areas where that are more receptive to basically going back in and doing rehabilitation. But the idea is to identify the highest priority areas uh, and then also areas at greatest risk then prioritizing the efforts to make sure that we 
we focus on those areas and we we do the things that we can to mitigate wildfires if we get wildfires starting uh, we we put them out as quickly as possible but then we also focus on things that we can do to rehabilitate those landscapes and so that's that's a huge emphasis uh, and that'll be talked about as one of the workshops in the forum uh, focusing on wildfire some of the new science some of the breakthroughs and some of the things that we can do to uh, to mitigate the threats uh, one of the other areas that offers probably the greatest opportunity is uh, uh, we have a lot of areas that are being encroached by conifers. Uh, um, sage grouse and conifers um, really don't mix. Uh, you know, uh, uh, they tend to avoid those areas. And so by going in and focusing on areas where we've got this encroaching going on, uh, in, in Utah alone, for example, we could uh, increase the base habitat of usable space and habitat by over a million acres uh, by focusing on uh, uh, projects and treatments that can reduce the sage or, or reduce the conifer canopy cover. And so there's a combination of different things, you know, looking at ways that we can, we can uh, work with development to offset some of those effects, looking with, with uh, private partners on ways we can uh, increase the available space to sage grouse, working with private partners and counties and, and, and cities looking at how we can mitigate the wildfire threats. And so there's a lot of effort going on to developing those tools which can help us prioritize those strategies and focus our energies on the areas that are most at risk that also offer the greatest benefit for sustaining sage grouse populations. And there seems to be a lot of focus on the sage grouse with these forums and uh, initiatives. And why is it such an important uh, species to protect? And why is there so much attention on on the sage grouse when there are, you know, probably other species too that are in perilous situations or under threat of declining populations? And what is it about the sage grouse, I guess, that okay. that garners so much attention? Well, they, the, the sage grouse have been long recognized as the icon of the West. You know, when you, we think of Western landscapes, we think of sagebrush and sage hens or sage grouse um, are synonymous with that. But one of the other things is that sage grouse are considered an umbrella species. In other words, that they're kind of that harbinger of how things are going. Uh, you know, they their life cycle clearly is linked to the presence of, of of sagebrush, uh, sagebrush habitat, sagebrush communities, and so, so they're looked to be as that indicator, that umbrella species, that that how they go, so goes the rest of the populations. And so, you know, we've got brewer sparrows and sage thrashers and mule deer and pygmy rabbits, and all of those are tied to that sagebrush ecosystem. But when we look at populations of sage grouse and the declines that have been going because of their heavy dependence on sagebrush ecosystems. And, and sagebrush themselves, they provide some indication and some clues of what might be happening to other sagebrush obligates out there. The other thing is that they're really landscape-level species, you know, and, and, and you look at their life cycle, and, and in these populations, you know, they they use large tracts of land, just like mule deer during the, you know, during their annual life cycle. You know, some of the other species, uh, you know, a brewer sparrow might have a smaller territory, a smaller range, but sage grouse basically need different habitats that they use as part of their seasonal movements. And so when those populations are declining, that suggests that there's impacts also happening out there to the sagebrush ecosystem that may be impacting other species. And so uh, 
essentially what they do is by the focus on sage grouse that provides that overall umbrella where some of these other species that also live and depend on uh, sagebrush ecosystems and sagebrush habitats uh, it, it gives an idea of how they might also be faring under uh, the similar such conditions. Lee actually mentioned that he noticed that there's oftentimes the he would see the sage grouse with the cattle that they seem to kind of hang out in a sense. You know, when one of the things when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service made its 2010 decision, uh, you know, there's a lot of concern about livestock grazing on western lands. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did not consider livestock grazing to be a range-wide threat. They said in certain areas where, you know, it's not properly managed, it could create a situation for local population. But range-wide, it, it was not identified as, as one of the specific threats. And so um, we have several areas in, in Utah and other areas across the West where, where well-managed livestock grazing uh, that incorporates rest rotation you know, sage grouse populations are doing very well under those situations. Uh, uh, some of our most robust populations, actually the populations where we've got, you know, our largest populations are current areas where we have grazing, which is part of the existing land use. And again, the grazing out there is focused on using that landscape in such a way that uh, we're using proper stocking rates and proper season of use. And so, um, those measures have, have, have demonstrated compatibility with sage-grouse. Uh, um, a lot of the treatments we look at doing on the landscape are focusing at, at trying to blend that combination. But again, for, for these things to work in concert, they have to be focused on a landscape basis, not, you know, not, a, not a few thousand acres, but what, really what we should be talking about in, in looking at managing grazing, grazing allotments. We should be looking at hundreds of thousands of acres. Um, and, and those areas where we've done these large landscape approaches have proved to be very beneficial to sage grouse. Terry, how can the public benefit from this forum, and why is it so important? The forum will provide for participants, and again, you can access it online if you can't participate, but it will provide the synthesis of the, the, the latest science and conservation strategies and management efforts that are ongoing range-wide. Um, you know, this effort is really unprecedented. Participants and those that are interested in, 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 in joining us online will, will learn firsthand what the science says, what it doesn't say, and how this knowledge can be applied on the landscape as far as helping to manage uh, sage-grouse populations and ecosystems, the sagebrush ecosystems for, for, for multiple different species. And so this is the, probably the best place to find the synthesis. It's the best place to find what's going on in terms of conservation strategies that, uh, uh, that folks are using out there and, and, and also what are some of the potentials uh, for, for this effort. Uh, what you will what we hope happens after this is folks will leave with, with energy. They'll be recharged. Uh, uh, Chief Weller, uh, Chief Jason Weller from the NRCS will be on hand to talk about the major initiatives for the Natural Resources Conservation Service under the Sage Grouse Initiative. That program has reached literally thousands of landowners all across the West and, and provided, if you will, a, uh, an incentive-based mechanism through conservation planning and, and, and proper management where uh, working landscapes that involve uh, local communities, they involve livestock grazing, they involve uh, 
uh, other entities out there where they can work together to maintain a working landscape and also maintain uh, sage-grouse populations. And so uh, uh, the focus, again, is doing the right thing, but also ensuring that uh, uh, that decision or that management action also is balanced with the needs of the community as well as the needs of the uh, sage-grouse and other wildlife. Professor Mazur, thank you so much for taking the time, and um, that should do it unless there's anything else important you think to mention. Right. There, there's one thing, Sherry. One okay. of the things is that the sage-grouse ecologists and scientists that have studied sage-grouse populations for the last several decades still believe and, 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 and recognize that we have, because of its widespread distribution on the landscape and because of the, the large patches of contiguous sagebrush that we still have available, they are they are to the person believe that you know conservation of sage grouse and any other species that depend on sage grouse ecosystems is 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 still viable. I mean we we have uh, a population widespread. We have a, a landscape that that exhibits a good quality, good habitat, sagebrush habitats, and so they're very optimistic that 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 you know this species uh, can and does have a bright future. That's good to hear. And with all of the uh, oil and gas exploration in eastern Utah and fracking there, and I mean, is that going to be part of this forum? Yes, it is. Actually, okay. in the forum, there'll be uh, specific discussions about the effects of anthropogenic activities such as oil and gas on sage grouse. There'll also be in that same workshop, there'll be discussions about some of the things that have been done to mitigate those effects. For example, you know, reducing site occupancy by directional drilling, uh, other mitigation techniques that have been put on the landscape. And so the focus is not just talking about all the effects and all the negative, but what are some of the things that are being done to kind of mitigate those effects and, and what kind of evaluations are look, we're looking at to translate that information into reality. Do these companies have to comply with regulations? Well, yes, it's a big part of it. You know, right now the... Uh, the BLM and the U.S. Forest Service are undergoing resource management plan and land use plan revisions which focus on those things that they can put in place to uh, to, to mitigate some of the threats to sage-grouse. And so some of those will be site restrictions, there'll be seasonal restrictions, and there'll be things that will be put in place based on the best science on, on what needs to be done. Uh, you know, the, the idea is trying to find a way that... Uh, uh, we can balance some of these activities with uh, the long-term uh, sustainment of sage-grouse populations and the habitats that they depend on. And do you still have uh, studies ongoing? In yes. I mean, range-wide, you know, Sherry, there, there are a lot of studies ongoing. You know, we're looking heavily right now of sage-grouse responses to conifer removal in western box elder, and there are other studies going on range-wide. We're looking at sage-grouse response to different grazing practices in Rich County, and, and then we're also looking at sage-grouse response to urbanization in, in, in other parts of the state. And so uh, the focus of a lot of the work right now is not, not looking necessarily at, at the threats or impact, but looking basically on how sage-grouse respond to management. In other words, when we're doing these things, when we're doing conifer removal, when we're doing grazing, what are some of the best management practices that we need to look at and, and and how we're translating that is looking at how sage-grouse respond, both in terms of using those areas, but also how we might see their production change in terms of nest success, brood success, and, and overall recruitment to the population. Okay, wonderful. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. It's and always, again, Sherry, always... you know, 
it's still available if folks want to tap in you know they can still tap in online if they if they can't join us in person uh, right now we've got uh, a couple dozen sites where folks have actually registered for it online and in some of these cases they'll be like community centers in california and and uh, offices here in Utah and some other places where folks will be watching the presentations and and be able to interact with the workshop presenters uh, at the same time while they're uh, they're hearing some of the best information. And again, so we've we've tried to make this available to to everyone range wide. And so uh, uh, if people are interested in wanting to join us, they can't be available on site. They can't you know fly to Salt Lake or drive to Salt Lake. There's still options available where they can uh, join us by registering for the uh, uh, forum activities uh, on our online site. Great. That's good to hear. Pleasure talking to you and have a, Thank you. a wonderful evening. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. For more information online, go to sage-grouseforum.org. For Access Utah, this is Sherry Quinn. Hey everybody, this is folk singer Michael Jonathan inviting you to tune into our broadcast on this station. We have new lore plus an amazing folk singer, Joshua James. I've got two half dollars underneath my bed. Once for my bed. It's music and conversation on this week's broadcast of the Wood Songs Old Time Radio. Friday night at 11 on Utah Public Radio.